Welcome to Millennial Shelter. I'm your host, Yusung Liu. Every episode of the show, we'll be discussing a topic that affects the lives of people today, namely this generation, the one that frequently has brunch, boba tea, and financial recessions. For this third episode, I wanted to examine our relationship with work. Why are we always thinking about it? Why do we feel the need to monetize our hobbies? And why do people currently seem so prone to getting burnt out? To answer these questions, we have some great guests on this episode. First, we'll be joined by author Eliza Clark to talk about whether or not her enjoyment of writing changed once it became a job rather than a hobby. Then we have podcast host and writer Nick Weiger on to discuss his relationship with fast food, as his wildly popular podcast Doughboys has reviewed over 300 chain restaurants at this point. Lastly, in our third act, I'll be taking a deep dive into whether or not a dream job actually exists and closely examining some of the deeper consequences of the phrase, find a job you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. Let's get into it. Act one, don't tell anyone. Eliza Clark is a London-based writer and her first book, Boy Parts, was released in July of 2020. To give you a quick summary, it's the fictional story about a photographer, Irina, who takes not-safe-for-work photographs of the average-looking men she persuades to model for her. It's written extremely well, and without spoiling anything, it's equal parts psychological thriller and dark comedy. In our conversation, we talk about what it's like turning what most people consider a hobby into a job, specifically what that might look like if you're trying to write a book and simultaneously working in retail. Not only that, we talk a bit about the fear of public failure, as our goals nowadays are often well-documented on social media. And what was really interesting to me was hearing how our perspective shifted from the new shininess of writing a first book to now the more normal process of writing her second. Hope you enjoy our conversation with Eliza Clark. In a previous interview, you mentioned that you started by writing fan fiction in your teens, <laughs> yeah. uh, which, which is incredible as someone who used to read a lot of fan fiction in, in my teens. Um, Obviously, writing started out as a hobby then, but do you remember when you started thinking, oh, maybe I could take this more seriously and maybe write as a profession? Um, to be honest, I feel like I've always been slightly egomaniacal and <laughs> that like when I was like, like I remember like doing the first kind of like creative writing exercise that mm. like I was ever presented with in like primary school mm. and being like five or six and like filling like 12 pages or whatever of my exercise book and like the teacher calling my parents in to show them what I'd done at the end of the day and me obviously just taking that as like yes yeah, so I'm gonna be an author <laughs> <laughs> so I've always I've always kind of wanted to do it professionally like my mother used to sort of say you kind of can't just to be a writer you've got to do something else mm. yeah I am um, I, I have always wanted to do it and I think doing sort of writing fanfic was kind of part of that. I don't know, I guess almost like impulse to share. Like I was I was actually at a literary festival mm. um, last weekend and I was on a panel and I was with two other writers who are both very intellectual and very like invested in literature as like an art and this kind of higher calling. Sure. And they both sort of said like, oh, you know, when you started writing, you started writing for yourself. And I was, and I was thinking like, <laughs> oh my god I, I've never done that I was always just immediately like writing any any old shit and then immediately being like look at me everybody right. look at me right right right, right. <laughs> um yeah I was I, I started out writing and reading because I wanted uh the characters I liked in Final Fantasy to be with one another and, and so I <laughs> totally understand that you mentioned your mom saying that you, you still have to do something else do you still even having published a book consider writing a hobby um I don't consider it a hobby, but I do still have a job. So I mm. work um three days a week still. Mm. But I would say like the majority of my income does come from writing now. But it's weird, I guess, because with um books that you get paid in like big chunks. Mm -hmm. So unless you've been paid in like a huge chunk, it's like really not feasible month to month to mm. sort of not have that constant um income yeah. so it's weird even though like half of my even though probably like more than half of my income comes from writing now um I still kind of need the job um just so I don't I don't know I guess like eat away at all of my savings and get into debt and stuff yeah definitely <laughs> definitely um well speaking of uh boy parts came out in 2020 but in 2018 you received mm -hmm. a grant from the young writers talent fund what mm -hmm. made you want to apply so that was funny actually I, I applied for a job um for that 
with that organization mm-hmm. so it's a, a charity called new right and north who are they're funded by arts council england and um obviously like other funding sources but arts council england is like the big um funding body in in the uk for um arts for the arts and they had this pot of money which was originally it was originally called the northern rock writers talent fund and i can't remember i either got the last lot of northern rock money mm-hmm. or the first lot of not northern rock money mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um i think it was the first lot of not it's boring logistics stuff anyway um but yeah so i applied for a job with new writing north because i was working at an apple store and i was very mm. bored and did not want to work at an apple store anymore and i was like desperate to just do anything in the arts mm-hmm. so i applied for this job with New Right and North and I didn't get it but they ended up contacting me afterwards to just basically um say kind of like we we liked you and we would like you to be able to do something with us and something wow. creatively um yeah so it was it was really it, it was it was like a total like sliding doors moment that if I hadn't applied for this job that I, w- I was actually disastrously underqualified for <laughs> um, I probably would never have um kind of gotten where I am mm-hmm. So after you've gotten this grant, you, you've also mentioned that, you know, you were working a working a job in retail at that time. Could you describe mm-hmm. how your weeks first looked when you were writing on uh, boy parts? So the grant was like controlled by New Writing North. So they didn't just kind of like give it to you. So in one half, I was trained as like a creative writing facilitator. So they did actually pay me to do that. And I was like helping with a sort of young writers group that they do at the weekends. Um, so it was like... 12 to 19 year olds I was teaching Mm. and then I moved on to like the second half of my funding which was they had a writer um kind of give me like one-to-one support so I had like a mentoring scheme with an author called Matt Wazalowski Mm -hmm. who was very good and very very supportive um and uh, generally just a really good mentor so my week was basically like I was working, I think, like 38 hours, maybe mm. 40 at the Apple store. So I was very, I was able to kind of like very smugly walk in and be like, I'm only doing 30 hours a week now. <laughs> only give me 30 hours of work a week, please. Mm-hmm. And then I, on Saturdays, would then get to go and do the sort of facilitation stuff with the kids. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I'd actually, I got around to the mentoring half, I'd actually gotten a new job. So I was able to, I think in part, because I had the connection with New Writing North, I got a job at a literary magazine mm. called Mislexia, mm-hmm. which is which is a women's creative writing magazine. And so I was only working four days a week there. So it was basically, I would do my job four days a week. And then I would, on Fridays and Saturdays, sit in the same cafe for eight hours every day and yeah. work on my book. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I would usually, during that period, I was seeing my mentor, um, Matt, on the Friday morning usually. So it would be like, I would write something during the week and then show it to him. And then he would give me like line by line notes on mm. the Friday and then when that kind of funding ran out, I was still sort of in the habit of writing every week. So I, I did the majority of the book um, probably kind of around the time that the funding sort of ended. But I, I did still kind of continue to get support from my mentor because he, he really went above and beyond to kind of help me out, which I'm I'm always really appreciative of. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like kind of Fridays and Saturdays pretty pretty diligently eight hours a day i was working i i actually have no idea how i was being so diligent with it now because... i was i was gonna ask how in the world did you have the energy to do that i i don't know i think i was just very into boy parts like i was really really into the project and mm. i was really excited to do it and i think because i'd had the sort of boost with the funding from new writing north and I was also working for the Creative Writing Magazine, which was like a really, really good insight into the industry. Mm-hmm. I think I just felt very motivated, like yeah. very, very motivated to kind of pull myself out of. I was also, I will say that my my literary magazine job was paid terribly. I, I was paid <laughs> really, really badly. So I think sure. part of it was also just the kind of motivation of like, if I can like sell this, then I can live on more than like five pounds a day (laughs) which would be amazing yes oh Um, wow yeah (laughs) Um, 16 year old yusung would have benefited greatly from this conversation um (laughs) so so you were working diligently on fridays and saturdays but Mm -hmm. writing is one of those professions where if you're ever thinking to yourself like hey i could be writing right now you're technically right um Mm. did you have any rules in place for working was it only on those two days so that it didn't take over the rest of your life and your free time 
you know, it's funny because because then it was still like it was still a hobby and it was still mm. fun. And I'm not saying that it's not fun now, but that is what I'm saying. Mm. <laughs> that like because it was a hobby and because it was fun, it was kind of all I wanted to do. So I I actually wrote the book really quickly, um, comparatively. Like I wrote it in about I think I did the first draft in about eight months or something, mm. which is kind of nuts. And then again, just because I was so into it, if I start I started writing it kind of like March 2018, and then finished it sort of around December 2018, mm-hmm. and then through like the first half of 2019 I was just going over it and editing it over and over and over and over again Mm -hmm. so I think I gave it like potentially up to 15 passes and the opening I may have gone over 20 or 30 times but like it didn't bother me at all like I was really I was just like enjoying the process of it and Mm -hmm. I I particularly enjoy editing as well so yeah I I think it's just because I was just enjoying it so much that I didn't really set myself any time limits and also because because it was a hobby then um Mm -hmm. it was it was just fun it was relaxing it's not anymore (laughs) (laughs) well well, I want to ask like um are you are you scared that you know you have another you have another book coming out things go well say say you're a full-time author are you scared that mm-hmm. you'll enjoy it less if that's the case I think at the moment I I feel like I am kind of struggling with burnout a little bit at the minute mm-hmm. um is because obviously I'm I'm still working a day job but I'm also I'm juggling like four different projects mm. so I'm like juggling all of this around a day job I I feel like I don't know I almost wonder if if like I didn't have the day job would I feel less or more kind of tired would i be better at metering out my time i really don't know um to 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 pull back mm. slightly in the Mm. book to give people a little context about the main character irena her her photography career has not been a success she's moved out of london and back home to newcastle Mm. does this set of circumstances mirror any of your feelings or fears about the pressures of becoming successful in a creative field yeah definitely I think it was like basically I wrote boy parts after I myself had left art school and had gone home to Newcastle granted it wasn't in quite sort of like fantastical failing style as as the protagonist of my book um Mm -hmm. but I I think a lot of the sort of like anger and frustration that's in the book the kind of feeling of like your circumstances are embarrassing because everybody expected you to do something else and Mm. there was this sort of feeling that you were kind of supposed to make it creatively and then you kind of didn't and you just sort of came home um Mm. obviously you're the only person that really is bothered about that like i imagine there's a lot of parallels to be drawn by the experience of people who move to la or new york and then for a couple of years and maybe find that things don't quite pan out and they've got to go back home to um i don't know what would the american equivalent of newcastle be probably uh, like wisconsin this is offensive <laughs> to, to, to someone and i don't even know if that's apt I, I don't i don't know either of those regions but yes i can i can relate to what you're saying yeah so i think a lot of i had kind of channeled a lot of that like frustration into into the book but also yeah i think i think it is like a constant worry isn't it that when you make it in a creative field that something's going to happen to make Mm. it go away and i will be back at that apple store right no way out (laughs) something something adjacent to this too is when you were setting out to uh become a writer did you tell people about it or did you even tell people online? Because I think that for a lot of people today, there's also the fear of failing publicly. Mm. Um, I'll just say, you know, the 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 phrase, "Hey, listen to my podcast," is like, you know, in the in the back of your mind, you're like, "Oh no!" Even though it doesn't doesn't <laughs> matter to, to anyone but yourself. But you're like, if something doesn't go right, and it if I had high expectations and those aren't met, then I'm going to have to delete like 50,000 tweets or or just leave them up and <laughs> accept that. So I, I'm curious, did you tell a lot of people while well, you were writing boy parts and before anything was solidified? No, absolutely not. No, I Great was so... Move. Yeah, I know. I, I'm like kind of just like you were saying, I think it's just the idea of like quixotically announcing, I am going to write a book mm. is so like, 
I don't know. I feel like we all potentially have someone in our life or have come across somebody who does kind of do that and announce basically every time they think they're going to sneeze, they're like, I have this amazing project coming up. And you're kind of like, oh, God, I really don't want to be like Dave, who keeps telling me about is amazing musical that he's gonna write or whatever and that it just never ever manifests i don't know it's also a lot of pressure to put on yourself i believe as well and i i'm doing that thing where they're like oh there was like a study but i'm sure that like (laughs) there was a study that if you kind of like announce that you're doing creative projects Mm -hmm. or kind of post like snippets of stuff before they're finished particularly when you do that in public and online and you get positive feedback i'm i'm sure i have read that makes you less likely to actually finish what you're doing because you've already kind of had like some positive feedback and you've had your little dopamine hit from it so you just kind of don't bother to go back to it so I am I never like tweet about projects that I'm doing Mm -hmm. and I never well very very rarely I think I'll occasionally make a reference to something but I think you do quite often see writers being like oh I just it's so random of me that I'm having to research like ravens and sofas like today can you like believe that that's so crazy it's in my new work in progress which is coming out in this this time and you're just kind of like well like stop tweeting about it because either you're not going to get it done or i'm going to look at your book and i'm going to be like there's no fucking birds or sofas in this she was talking shit or she was talking about something that like failed yeah (laughs) Um, I, i will say even though neither of us can point to the specific quote study i've also read that where the context yeah. of if you if you post I'm going to the gym and you get the positive reinforcement, you will not likely go to the gym because <laughs> your brain has already gotten all the rewards, uh, the validation from other people. Anyway, so so you've mentioned in other interviews too that writing boy parts is enjoyable and uh, some of it happened in one sitting, namely its first iteration as a short story, but also the ending chunk it was written mm-hmm. in, in in one sitting. Can you can you compare how frequently this like you know, this like magic burnt tongue style of writing happened Mm. versus the mundane type of writing, the getting through uh, plot point by plot point. Yeah, I think like most of that first draft, I just remember being like coming very naturally and feeling very like doing like big chunks in a day, like not nothing quite as much as the ending where it was kind of like I knew that I was on the home stretch. So I just kept going all day. Mm -hmm. And I think particularly, like I said, I do I do really enjoy the editing process. So I think it's also being able to do that and know that I can like tidy this up later. Um, and it's good to just kind of get it out and get it down so I feel like most of it was kind of done with this sort of like it just kind of worked and it just kind of happened and it was very nice I'm now at the moment for my second book experiencing that much more mundane kind of Mm. day-to-day having to set a target and trying to meet that target and often not successfully meeting that target and that being yeah I guess kind of disappointing but I do think I discovered through through the process of writing my second book that actually I do work much better writing in big chunks and that I'm not very good at just doing like three, four hundred words a day, which mm-hmm. is quite a lot of writers that I know have very set routines where they'll kind of get up at seven o'clock in the morning and then maybe right. write three or four hundred words before work and then they'll do work and then they won't look at their project again until the next day when they go and do their three and three or four hundred words which is a much more sensible and like approachable way to go about writing a book. Mm-hmm. But I, I just feel like my kind of brain and process operates in such a way that I just, I need to be like hyper-focused on what I'm doing and I need to get like over a thousand words done in one sitting. Otherwise it just mm. doesn't quite work for me and I don't get into the flow of it. Speaking of like, you know, setting targets for yourself and, and sometimes not meeting them, writing is often a solitary activity whether you're sitting at a cafe for eight hours or or sitting at home for eight hours, um, one that is prone to feeling like you're banging your head against a wall, even on a good day. Would you say that you've experienced burnout with regards to this specifically, like the act of writing a book? Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's sort of the, the, I guess not so much the writing the book itself, but the combination of balancing the book with other projects Mm -hmm. and with a job and also with the pressures of like increased public exposure and events and interviews and stuff I think that's that's very strange because it kind of like you were saying that writing is this very solitary process so now that there are like other people in the process that is really weird Mm -hmm. um I think because with with boy parts I didn't have an agent and um the 
publisher that took it. So I went with an independent press who accepted it as an unagented submission, which is something that a mainstream, we call them the big five. So it's the ones that are owned by, I think it's Penguin Random House, Simon Schuster, Hachette. Mm-hmm. Two other ones, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, you can Google that if you're interested. But um, yeah, like the big five and their various imprints would never ever accept an agent, an unagented submission. Everything has to go through a literary agent. So I was with a small press, and by the time the small press had taken it, it had gone through like so many drafts that there was kind of very, very little actual like editing that was done to it. Mm-hmm. Whereas this time, I've got an agent I've got like a I'm, I'm with a different publisher now I'm, I'm moving to Faber and Faber so I've got an editor who's like can look at it as it goes mm-hmm. so it's like this really weird process of trying to decide when do people get to see it who gets to see it first mm-hmm. like at what point should they see it and yeah I think the fact I don't have to look at it 20 times before somebody else sees it somebody else can look at the first draft and help me out with it is like that's really weird to get my head around mm-hmm. um it's it's very strange monetizing your hobby and mm-hmm. making your hobby your main source of income. It, yeah. It's like a very strange transition. Like I bake a lot and it's almost <laughs> as if I've gone from making really kind of slightly sloppy cakes in my kitchen and like forcing my boyfriend to eat them because I don't have that much of a sweet tooth. I just like baking and <laughs> um, to like suddenly I'm like a professional chef mm-hmm. and there are people around me asking for food and I'm just like, oh my God, why have I done this? Right, right. <laughs> Um, well, I, I want to say like, th- there's a million steps between starting to write a book and finishing it. Are there intervals mm-hmm. where you will reward yourself for having completed something? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm terrible for, for giving myself a little treat. I am a, a friend of mine, Imogen Knight West recently wrote a really good piece for the Financial Times called Treat Brain. Mm. And it's just about how like through, it seems particularly through the pandemic, a lot of people have gone into this weird constant, I need to give myself a little treat mode. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm terrible for like, oh, I like looked at my draft for like 15 minutes. It's time right. for a little treat. Right. right. <laughs> um, this This question is like a slight, departure from what we've been talking about. But on the subject of work culture, uh, you know, discourse about America is hard to avoid in any country, mm-hmm. especially online. Do you have any comparisons you've gleaned about American work culture versus British work culture in the last, you know, few years or decade? Yeah. Um, you know, what? it's funny that to mention to, to mention the Apple store that I worked at again, I think, because that's the most American work environment I've had. I feel like I was mm-hmm. being quite harsh on the Apple store as well. I did have dental coverage. It was a very nice place to work as far as like retail jobs go particularly right. but yeah I remember like when I did induction for that and them talking about our holiday allowance it's generally I think the average in the UK is we get like 28 to 30 days of holiday mm. and one of the managers being like oh yeah in the US they think we're insane they think that we're like total mm. fucking commies for giving <laughs> our staff like 30 days of holiday <laughs> yeah, yeah and stuff so I don't know sure. I gathered that like it seems like a lot more intense in the US I gather that you don't get anywhere near as much holiday as us mm. and yeah i don't know it like like i said it just seems a lot more intense a lot more aggressively capitalist and i think unions have constantly have consistently kind of had maybe less power in the states than they have in the uk though granted i think i think a lot of the sort of positive stuff we had around unions is potentially being eroded slowly by the garbage government we've had for the last 10 years sure, sure. <laughs> Well, lastly, I want to ask, do you still write fan fiction? No, but we'll we'll see. Um, I think it's just, I would really like to write more fan fiction. I find it really fun and relaxing. And I also like remember when I was a kid and I was reading fanfic and that would be somebody who was very, like you would get one in every fandom who was just very obviously a professional writer that did mm. this for fun and was very kind of like wink wink about the fact that they were clearly a professional writer. And I kind of want that for me. Yes. <laughs> um, so so we'll see, maybe, maybe when I've got a little bit more spare time. <laughs> the ultimate flex. Um, <laughs> that was our interview with Eliza Clark. I highly recommend her book, Boy Parts, which is now available on Audible as well. You can find her on Twitter, at Fancy Eliza. Stick around. We'll be right back. Act 2. As punishment, you have to eat the entire cake. 
Nick Weiger is a friend and co-host of the hit podcast Doughboys. Not only that, he's an accomplished TV writer and also co-hosts the show How Did This Get Played? In this conversation, though, we mostly focus on Doughboys, a podcast for which I was the producer for a while. If you've never heard of the show, each episode, he and his co-host Mike Mitchell go to a different chain restaurant, have a meal there, and then review their experience with a guest. We touch on a lot of subjects, like whether or not fast food is still enjoyable for Nick outside of the show, how it can be difficult setting boundaries for yourself when you can do work from your phone, and what would happen if the show, which has released an episode every Thursday for the last six years, ever missed a week. Please enjoy our conversation with Nick Weiger. Doughboys, the podcast started in May of 2015, and since then it's grown into a large show with an active fan base and a successful Patreon. When you first started the show, did you consider it a hobby or did you start it as a professional pursuit? First off, how about hello? <laughs> it's nice to see you, my friend. It's nice to see you too, Nick. I <laughs> No, I'm sorry. You told me you were going to do that. And I apologize. I really pulled the rug out from under you. No, um, it's quite it's, all right. It's a, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the, 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 and now I don't remember the question. <laughs> sorry. When you when you first started Doughboys, did you consider it a hobby, or were you thinking about it more with a professional like lens? I think there. Okay, so there was there was a tiny bit of calculation of like, you know what? I think it's maybe a little late to get in the podcasting game, which sounds absurd thinking back on 2015. But you know, like, hey, maybe I don't know. I I I'd always try to do like. I don't do this anymore, but when I was a little younger, I'd always try to like, okay, there's some new thing. I'm going to figure out what that is and try to do that, whether that was like web video or social media or podcasting. Mm. And so so there that, that was a little bit of calculation on my part, but it was mostly just uh, me and Mike Mitchell, who I co-host the show with, just mm -hmm. we're like, you know, we're friends and we're always like... We just banter a lot with each other and and riff with each other and rip on each other playfully, uh, and we're just sort of like, hey, would you let's uh, let's figure out something to work on? And a podcast is honestly probably the least amount of time that would take for either of our schedules. So we're mm. like, hey, let's try this thing, and we we settled on the concept ultimately, and. Yeah, it, so I, I think it was more, it, there was an element of like, I want to see what podcasting is all about. I'm just going to try podcasting and see how it goes. But I think there was also a, and it was a podcast listener, but I think there was also, it was mostly like, hey, this is a fun thing to collaborate on with a friend and, you know, whatever, the stakes are low and it's not a, an enormous time commitment. At least it wasn't then. Mm -hmm. Was there a specific moment then, because it sounds like a casual collaboration that yeah. you started to take it more seriously? Um, yeah, I think, I think when we started to get more of an audience, I think we mm. just, we didn't realize and, and, uh, we were, we were very lucky that we kind of found an audience fairly quickly. Like I, I, I it was within the first dozen episodes or so we had a lot of people talking to us and we we're getting a lot of engagement on episodes and, you know, people like I hadn't talked to in a while would just like reach out and be like, Hey, I love Doughboys, that sort of thing. And just like, oh, okay. So maybe people are actually listening to this thing. Mm -hmm. So I think I think it was fairly uh, early on we started to be like okay and and we want to try to do a good good job so try to put a little bit more effort into it. I think once it I think we had that for a stretch and then I think we got jaded pretty quick and then I think we we got lazy. <laughs> well speaking of working on the show in order to create an actual episode of Doughboys there's a lot of logistical aspects there's writing the intro that you do with history about right. the chain restaurant there's the booking guests the food review itself. Are there any aspects of the show that you enjoy doing more or less than others? Good question. I mean, the logistic stuff gets a little tedious. That's why we ultimately and, – and it's just a lot of the stuff to keep in our brains. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we ultimately hired people like you and, and Emma Erdbrink and, uh, and Robert mm -hmm. Persinger to, to help with that, that workload. Yeah, I, I, stuff I don't I – I, I think if it's a guest that I don't know – like mm. I've never met and I don't know anything about and they're they're there because a publicist wanted them to do the show. Sure. That's usually a situation where it's like this is not going to be the most fun interaction uh, because sometimes that also means that they don't want to be there. So it's mm. just like so none of us want to do this. This is just because some publicist thought this would be good for your personal brand and so that you're here. No one's really into this discussion. And even if you're affable, it's just like not the most fun engaging thing. 
But if there is a guest I just flat out don't know that is like, hey, either is just interested in the show or we reached out to because we're a fan of them and they're, they're there, like that can oftentimes be a really fun and engaging conversation. So I, it, it's it's not so much like whether or not we know somebody. Uh, it's always easiest with someone we know, but it's not so much whether or not we know a guest and more so that is is the guest there to have a good time or, or are they there to fulfill a, an obligation? Mm-hmm. Doughboys has existed for more than six years now. That's over 340 regular episodes, not to mention over 200 bonus episodes. I First, I want to ask, has your relationship with fast food changed at all during this time? Yeah, I've gained I've gained weight. I've gotten mm. fatter. Um I look like shit. Uh I'm less happy. It's really easy to I I would think I was eating pretty well honestly when Doughboys started and you can look at some of the early guest photos back when we used to take used to record in person and I I I look pretty pretty lean. Mm. I almost look like you song. Um so <laughs> I, I was pretty, and I put on some weight partly because I've been doing more strength training, mm-hmm. but all but a, a, there's, a, there's a good amount of body fat that I've added, and that's because like it's it's okay. I was good about having my fun meals, and you know limiting those to a certain number of of uh, of meals per week. But now with the podcast, it's like okay, well, I have these meals that I have to eat for work that are often punishingly unhealthy, mm-hmm. and. I also want to have fun meals. So those just get added on. Mm-hmm. And then also because I'm just eating more fast food, eating more ch- at eating more, at more chain restaurants, that's just in my brain in general. I'm I more likely to just be like, ah, fuck it. I'm going to go to Burger King. You know what I mean? I, I'm just yeah. thinking about it more and I'm just craving it more. So yeah, I think it's ultimately been detrimental to my health and, and you know, probably honestly the health of a good number of our listeners, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. we're, we're creating a lot of pain out there. <laughs> Um, do you still enjoy the fun meals or is there always an air of, well, this is technically for the show or I should be thinking about it. The meals for the show are sometimes a chore, but sometimes they're an absolute delight. It just Mm -hmm. depends on the chain. We've, we've had some chains where we're just like, oh man, this is so good. And this is either something I haven't had in a while or something I wouldn't have had or, you know, just just something I would I would not think to to spend one of my you know, quote unquote cheat meals on, and I'm having just the time of my life eating this thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there there are some really really good fast food meals that we and chain restaurant meals that we've had for the podcast specifically, in, in particular when we travel because we'll oftentimes hit like a regional chain that I would never have had otherwise, mm-hmm. and sometimes those are really good. You know, this is this is not necessarily the absolute top of the list but cookout mm. um in the south yeah cookout was was so so good we reviewed that in atlanta that was not for a live show but that was when we were just recording in atlanta and uh and the, the another one that i absolutely love is culver's which is kind of like it, it's not exactly like in and out but i think people in the midwest people in wisconsin specifically think of it as like kind of their in and out it's like their regional burger chain that they have this strong allegiance to mm-hmm. and that is so good i mean mm-hmm. i mean culver's i think about often it's it, and that's a meal i wouldn't have had otherwise yeah now i want to ask with this context you and yes. mitch joke around about ending the show but do you earnestly ever want to take a break yeah I mean, I, I think we, we <laughs> that always comes from th- this is the thing is that Mitch and I are like, I, I think part of why mm. people maybe respond to the dynamic and not to analyze it too much. But it's like, I think it's we're just honest with each other on the show. And when we are frustrated with each other, we say it. And when we're frustrated with when we're disappointed in ourselves, we say it. And when we think the show sucks. We say it and we mean it. Like, we're just like, I think this is bad. I'm ashamed that I'm making this. And then when we, and that often leads to, yes, we want to end the show. We don't want to do it anymore because it's, it's a chore. And it's also like, this is what I'm doing. Like, this is certainly not what I wanted to do when I was like, you know, like, Hey, I want to, I, I think I'll get into doing, uh, I think I'll get into Hollywood. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to talk into a microphone in my home office about Wendy's fries. That wasn't like my idea of, of a of a career path, but you know, I, I think we do that and I think that the the to also be real, I think there's an there's just a point of economic reality where we're like, well, you know what, this we are we are very lucky to make some money uh, doing this, so it'd be kind of dumb to end it prematurely unless mm-hmm. we absolutely can't stand it. H- have you ever felt proud of the show? 
No. Um, my next question is, uh, in the history of the show, Doughboys has always had an episode come out on Thursday mornings for the last six years. Even on holidays, there will be a bonus episode released or something that appears in the feed. I feel like a lot of people who create podcasts or YouTube videos or media of any kind have the fear of missing a week. Can you describe why you think that is and whether or not you also feel this way? Well, the short answer is that people will complain. Mm. Like if you if you miss a week, we we had some situations early on in, in our first couple of years where you know we just we're we're still figuring it out and uh, we were working with different people and it just sometimes the episode we're on a different network and sometimes the episode would come out later than scheduled even on that same day even but it would be out you know instead of whatever instead of I, I think we release now at midnight at 1201 Pacific on Thursdays instead of then it would be it would come out at like 10 a.m. I would come out mid-morning mm-hmm. and people would be livid because I think I think there's an element to if you're a listener I, I I'm not as fanatical about it but but some people have like but I also don't have a super rigid work schedule yeah I think if you have like a, com- a regular commute and you have a uh, or you have a regular workout schedule or something and like hey on Thursday mornings I listen to Doughboys uh you know while I'm doing my bar workout or whatever like or or while I'm you know uh, while I'm doing my shift at the at the grocery store and you don't have that content it's frustrating do you think that if Doughboys were to miss a, a week for whatever reason that it would have like a large adverse reaction in the listener base I think we could get away with it once, mm-hmm. you know, at, at putting aside the death threats our social media manager would get, um, which is not hyperbole. Oh, I no. think that, yeah, yeah it's, it, it, but, um, but I do think that we could get away with it once, but if it starts to happen more and more, people just fall off. Mm-hmm. It's, it, there's so much content out there and a big part of, I think why you consume something like a podcast is because it's reliable. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like morning radio. It's like if the... You, the, you know, the show goes on, whatever, it's 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. every every morning, and it goes through, you know, the morning commute, and if that just stopped airing some days randomly, you'd just find a different morning radio show to listen to. It's mm-hmm. the same principle. Yeah. Well, in, in my experience working in podcasting, a lot of the work uh, doesn't happen from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Often it's late at night. In order to avoid it constantly bleeding into your personal life, do you have any rules for when you work on the show? I didn't used to. This is a great question. I didn't used to, and and I also didn't used to for for work in general. Mm-hmm. And I I had to honestly in in recent years, basically during quarantine, when I found myself with when everyone found themselves with the same well the same same experiences. It's 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 kind of dull to rehash, but. You know, everything was shuffled. It felt like everything was happening at once, and there was no real rhyme or reason to the day unless you were, you know, one of those people who was an essential worker who was still maintaining your regular shift uh, to keep society running. And so, like, yeah, I would I would just do stuff whenever, and I, I ultimately had to just kind of draw a line where I'm just like, you know what, I'm just going to try to keep everything. I'm going to try to just maintain a work week. Mm. And within that work week, I'm going to try to have my work end at a certain point each day. So I just, I've kind of like backed into, even though I'm work from home and can set my own schedule uh, for the podcast, at least I've kind of backed into just having like a square job Hmm. where I'm like, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll basically be available for things for normal hours, Monday through Friday. And then weekends, I'm going to keep to myself unless it's something unavoidable. Hmm. So yeah, I, I think for my own sanity, I've tried to keep things pretty, pretty rigid in 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 the past couple years Mm -hmm. there's also the experience of like not recording or or planning necessarily but there's like the soft working there's like the texting aspects of of it too where you could theoretically always be in conversation about it does that also have you also tried to shove that in the boundaries of having a regular work week Man, I wish I could. It's mm. really, it's really. I mean, the the issue is that sometimes you just have stuff that that comes up at odd hours. Some part of that is unique to Doughboys, mm. which is you know, I I have I have another podcast and it doesn't have the same workflow. But part of that is unique to Doughboys, and I will blame Mitch, <laughs> which is that Mitch does not check his email. 
So the only way to reliably communicate with him is via iMessage. Right. And so what that means is if you have other people emailing the two of us, it's just wasted time because that ends up me being me screen capping an email and texting it to Mitch. Mm -hmm. So I just we just do everything through iMessage so that he's looped in. Mm -hmm. And that probably creates more work. I mean, you've been on that you've been on that text chain. That probably creates more work for you and the other people affiliated with the show and makes it feel more omnipresent because it's always in your iMessage notifications. But I, I think that's just a reality of our workflow, and that's just a concession to making the show uh, keep going. I, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I'm I'm pretty – I try to be pretty pragmatic about that sort of thing of just like, okay, well, this is what works for us. There's no reason to change it. This is this is a, a, a huge departure from what I'm saying, but – I always think of how the uh, I always think of how the U.S. after the uh, the the wasteful war of opportunity that uh, was the invasion of Iraq oh, tried to completely rebuild Iraq's infrastructure from scratch, right? Including like they had a completely functional stock market that was based off of you know literally writing things on it like in chalk and in and and on paper. It, it was like a it was like a pen and paper stock market, but it was stock exchange, but it was completely functional. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. administrators were basically like. You know what? This should be computerized, and so they just they just got they just discarded it, and then just tried to set up a new computerized system. It was of course a complete debacle. Mm -hmm. The same sort of thing with how they disbanded the Iraqi military. They were like, "We're just going to disband it. We're going to and we're going to build a new one from scratch." And it's just like, well, it was a, it was a complete mess mm -hmm. because there's an instinct to be like, "Hey, we should do things the right way. I want to change things up to do them the right way," and then oftentimes just makes a makes a uh, makes things not work at all. So yeah, we have something that's working for us, which is a, uh, which is communicating via <laughs> iMessage, and that's what we keep doing. I also want to thank you in advance for all the TMZ press we're going to get for the for the rehashing of the Weiger Mitchell feud. So <laughs> thank, you, thank you for that. Those um, vultures. <laughs> uh, you mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier uh, with regards to fast food and eating fun meals versus work meals, but when you're not working on the show and when you're not texting about it, when it's not the work week, are you still thinking about it? Are you still thinking about Doughboys? Yeah. I mean, I try to try to less, but I think that's just that's just your having an active brain, I think. It's just you're going to be thinking about everything. It's really hard to... That's every job I've ever worked. Is, mm. I mean, it's the same with you, right? Mm -hmm. like, have, you, have you ever had a job where you were able to completely forget about it? Even the what the most what 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 people would would deride as menial labor I've had the 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 do jobs I've done for a living that are kind of like pretty uh you know pretty a, a low rung on the ladder I still think are I I, I would just think about them all the time I think yeah. about them as my day ended and I think about them over the weekend it just it just kind of sucks that's uh, that's almost precisely why I wanted to talk about it because there's it might be unique to this generation. It might not be, but there's always the nagging feeling of, oh, we could be doing, like, I could be working right now. And I, and I think that that's, I, I don't think that's great. And I, and I wanted, yeah. Yeah. So I, I totally empathize with that. That is, that is a hundred percent true to my experience where regardless of the job, I'm always thinking about it. Well, when you can do your your job from your phone that you keep in your pocket, mm -hmm. it's just mm -hmm. impossible to escape. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I just I've just tried to to as much as possible segment my life into sections of productive free time and, you know, times when I'm working. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned this previously, but you do have another podcast, How Did This Get Played? And you're also a successful TV writer. As someone in this position, like with a non-conventional career with floating schedules, like a one week might not look the same to the next having this experience and also having the experience of working in an office job to a nine to five, is there one that you prefer? I'd rather have a set schedule. Mm -hmm. I like things being predictable. I, I guess the thing is that, uh, that it's, it's way in my past when I had a, an actual predictable schedule for an office job, because, you know, oftentimes a, a, a TV writing job, like you mentioned, that'll be, yeah, Hey, we're getting into the office at 10 AM today, but you might stay till 10 p.m. You might mm -hmm. stay, you know, like because something just has to be fixed. That's that's a lot of office jobs. That was certainly my when I worked in the video game industry, which was my career prior to getting into TV writing and comedy in general. 
Um, I, I, I was like, yeah, it was the, that schedule can be it can be an absolute nightmare. I mean, you, you know, people the people have talked a lot to uh, cover the industry about and people who work in the industry of, of the the labor conditions there and just how onerous they can be. So yeah, that would be those would be twelve hour days routinely, and. Yeah, if I I've I've fantasized on the show about like getting a job at like Costco or something. Like mm-hmm. if I and I know even in retail your your shifts are often aren't, times aren't predictable. That's another issue where people are just erratically scheduled or being asked to come in at the last minute. That sucks. Um, but the idea of having a a pretty predictable fixed schedule I think always works better for me. I try to do when it comes to other things, when it comes to like fitness, I try to do things kind of at the same times every week. I, I try to have meals at roughly the same times every week. Like I'm, I'm, I respond well to structure. Do you think that because of the lack of structure, in my opinion, there's more of a danger of feeling burnt out because without guidelines, you're technically, it's easy to slide into always working. Um, have yeah. you ever felt burnt out on on podcasting or, or TV writing or or any of these more non-conventional jobs that you've had? Yeah, I mean, that's just anything you have to do for money. Like, mm-hmm. it's just it's I think that's always going to be a feeling of like, this is an obligation. This is a task. And there reaches a point where you're just like, yeah, I don't I, I'd rather be doing something else. I, I it's it's really and I've read books about like like uh, uh, over the past couple years when couple years when we've been quarantined and um and just like I've I've read a lot about like productivity and like mental mm-hmm. health and uh you know mindfulness and there is something to just sort of like I mentioned like productive leisure time earlier some 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 version of that phrase like there is something to just sort of like we have a tendency this this was something i picked up we have a tendency to always like schedule out our work time and schedule out like hey i have this work task but we basically never do that for leisure time Mm. and so we end up with a lot of unproductive low value leisure time you know as as wide and as flat as a pancake i think was the phrase it's just mm. like it's it, we're 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 doing everything at once and we're doing nothing so like i'm I, i'm just like texting a bunch of different people and looking at instagram and looking at reddit doing all this on my phone well and and, it, and none of it is is high value it all kind of and honestly it's not even like giving like it's not even all that fun it's just mm-hmm. like oh well this is something i have to do i have this odd bit of time whereas if it's like Hey, I'm going to schedule this time to do something I enjoy, whether mm-hmm. that's drawing or practicing an instrument or playing a video game or watching a movie. I'm going to schedule that out or doing yoga. I'm going to schedule this time out to do something that I want to do for fun, for my own enjoyment. I think that that that's been a thing I've been working on that I think has helped help shake me out of, hey, I'm going to be working all the time. And and that that requires even some restraint because like even if I'm playing a video game I'm playing it on in my home office uh, mm. and I can look over at a different screen and check my email at any time so I have you have to do things like it, for me it's things like put my phone in a drawer or something you know what I mean mm. it, it's 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 just trying to to mentally separate things a little bit so that I can have a little bit of actual separation from my from from work life and and you know what i want to actually do with my life Mm -hmm. speaking of leisure your two podcasts are about fast food and video games which are things that people would generally consider leisure activities Mm -hmm. has that affected your ability to to enjoy and relax them in your off time or have you found new activities to do in order to relax that's outside of these two topics Good question. I don't know. I, I don't think it has actually hurt my enjoyment of of either topic at at, at all. I think in particular in, in video games, it's just like it's given me an excuse to play more video games and spend more time thinking about video games and reading about video games and mm. which and and watching speed runs, which I know is up your alley, and which I. Uh, and I love that stuff. It, it, it'd be like having for me, you know, like I also love the NBA. It'd be like if I had like a basketball thing I was working on, I was just like, hey, I just get to watch more basketball and think about basketball more. That's great. That said, there is an element to, and I think this comes to, this is this is like a hustle culture thing and kind of what, what you were talking about earlier of just like always having opportunities to work. And I, maybe you encountered this as a Twitch streamer of 
I, I certainly felt this when I was when I was streaming Twitch of like, wow, I found a hobby to monetize, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, and and it's like it's one thing of like, hey, I love playing guitar. I'm going to play guitar in a band. And, and hey, we end up making some money playing some shows and recorded an album and that and that sold pretty well. Like that's that to me is something different from here. I'm going to do this thing that I enjoy and that'll just be like performative so that I can have some money coming it's like you know what it's like a slightly yes. different thing i don't know if that that distinction makes sense maybe it maybe it isn't a distinction no absolutely one of the things that i wanted to examine was the fact that there's no pure hobbies anymore like even right. if you're crocheting you could be recording uh, things on tiktok about it or or setting up an etsy shop there's always a, a pressure to monetize your hobbies yes the the grind set and so and so relaxing seems like such a such a vague idea such a vague untangible uh in terms of how you want to structure your time yeah it's it, it's and then you also feel uh, i think there's an instinct there's a feeling a lot of people have of oh i should be monetizing this mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. i did that i have this thing and wait why like wait i'm i'm being dumb for not monetizing this I should be doing this, and then that that that, that detracts from your enjoyment. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. I guess I guess it's just like, do you enjoy? I I think it's maybe mentally understanding that doing something for money is always going to feel something different than doing something for fun. Mm -hmm. And so you know, it's one thing if you have to do it out of economic necessity, but if it's like a plus one, if it's just like, well, this could be some added income, then see if you actually like doing the performative side of your hobby. Mm -hmm. And if you if not, it's maybe not worth it. Yeah. It's maybe better just keep that for you. Looks like people are gonna have to stick around to Act Three to figure out if it's uh, worth it or not. Um, wow, what a tease! <laughs> uh, my my last question is with, with Doughboys. You're about to go on tour in a few months. Uh, a lot of cities, a lot of shows on the East Coast, uh -huh. and otherwise. Uh, from experience, I can say that a tour is is fun, but can also be stressful and extremely yes. tiring at times. Both the travel and the performing. Do you reward yourself at all for doing the show in general or finishing a tour? Uh, no. I mean, I I think the reward is that it's it's it pretty decent financially to mm. to tour. I think that's the they just think of it as a work trip. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but no, I I think that'd probably be. You know what? I I do actually had uh, we turned uh, me and my my wife Natalie turned a we did a show in Seattle and the way it was scheduled was on a Friday night and then we had nothing else that weekend. So mm -hmm. you oftentimes will have tour dates stacked in a row regionally, but this just happened to be like this was a one off Seattle show on a Friday night, and we just stayed through the weekend and just had a little mini Seattle vacation, mm -hmm. and that was nice. Yeah. So it'd be nice if you could do more of that. It's a little tougher when you're doing, you know, four shows in, in three cities and three nights. That's usually at the end of that, you're just so wiped that you don't want to, you don't want to do it. You just want to go home and just sleep. Mm. But yeah, but I think, I think that, that, that was the instance where, Hey, we turned a, we turned a work trip into a vacation. Do you feel accomplished after a tour? No. That was our interview with Nick Weiger. You can listen to Doughboys or How Did This Get Played wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find him on Twitter, at Nick Weiger. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Act 3. The Job, a.k.a. The Promised Land. All right, let's talk about our relationship with the idea of work. I'll start with a personal confession. In 2010, Donald Glover, a.k.a. Childish Gambino, who's one of the most popular rappers currently, released an EP called Cul-de-Sac. And on this EP, there was a song called Got This Money. And in that song, there's a lyric, I'm recession-proof. I work to relax. And when I heard that for the first time, my reaction was, that's so cool. It's so cool that he can't stop working. I wish I could be that productive. Basically, I was romanticizing this idea of being so addicted to your work to the point where it became self-destructive. Relaxing? Who cares? I'm a hero because I can't stop working. I'm virtuous because I can't stop working. Now, of course, I no longer feel this way. Regardless, today I wanted to examine that. I want to figure out why I was idealizing work and try to untangle this complicated set of expectations between us and our jobs. First, let's start with a quote, find a job you enjoy doing and you'll never have to work a day in your life. 
On the surface, I think this is a very agreeable idea, but we have to take a look at the subtext. It implies that finding a job you love is the exception, not the rule. The rule or the norm is getting a job that you don't like doing, or one that you're miserable at. And this norm is easily provable. In a 2015 Gallup poll, only 31% of Americans considered themselves engaged at their jobs, whereas 50% of employees were not engaged and another 17 were actively disengaged. We can also see that normal jobs aren't paying well. Federal minimum wage is $7.25 per hour. Pew Research shows that the average American's purchasing power is roughly the same as it was 40 years ago. Anyway, the implication is that most jobs are not engaging, and based on evidence that they don't pay well. Naturally, that creates a lot of pressure from a young age to find a dream job. So let's define dream job. One of the best writers on this subject is Anne Helen Peterson, and she describes a dream job as satisfying multiple criteria. One, it's something that you can be proud of, in that it's decently paying, reflects well on your parents, and is easily recognizable as a good job. Two, it's impressive to your peers, like if they think you're working at a cool company. And three, most importantly, it's work that you're passionate about. Now, I don't want my podcast to be a bummer. But I think we shouldn't shy away from hard truths like, hey, the tooth fairy's not real, or hey, if you wrote some books about a fictional wizarding school, maybe stay off Twitter. The point is, I don't think dream jobs exist. We can see from our conversations with Eliza and Nick, once you start doing something out of obligation, rather than because you're getting intrinsic enjoyment out of it, it's no longer that fun. On the contrary, it becomes mundane, repetitive. Now, you can definitely respond by saying, of course everyone knows there's no such thing as a dream job, and that this is a naive way of looking at things. To which I'd say, yes, because when you're first told these ideas, when you're first introduced to the concept of a dream job, you're a child. You are naive. And so when you're naive, you're promised that a job you love wouldn't feel like work, that if you love doing it, you'll be passionately blissed out Monday through Friday, nine to five. And as a child, it's very easy to internalize that. So what happens when you start getting disillusioned? Say you've been working a few years, maybe a decade, and you still haven't found a job that brings you pride, impressive acknowledgement from your peers, or one that you're necessarily passionate about. Well, we can start to see some of the consequences in this in how we view our hobbies. As a result, we begin searching for the things that a job was supposed to give us in our leisure activities instead. But whether it's crocheting or playing video games, it doesn't scratch the same itch. It might be fulfilling, but importantly, it's not making you money. And yet we've been told that there's a one-stop shop for joy and financial stability. So what do we do? We try to monetize our hobbies. This is why Etsy had over 2 million sellers in 2019 and 4 million sellers in 2020. It's why Twitch had over 3 million streamers in 2018 to over 8 million streamers today. In trying to make money, however, we see the activity as less of a hobby and instead we start to refocus on being productive, on being at work. And it's almost funny because in the U.S., I'd argue that we're bad at leisure for leisure's sake because we don't find it valuable. And in this makeshift solution, in monetizing our hobbies, we'll sell something, see a dollar amount, and then we can finally ascribe that number to the activity's value. We literally have to see an amount next to a dollar sign because, due to our capitalistic upbringing, that's one of the few ways that we can calculate value. So why do I think people are burnt out? Well, to summarize, people today don't have a lot of financial security with their jobs. And on top of that, it's this never-ending search for money, for fulfillment, for meaning that's crept into almost every corner of our lives. And because we're always searching, it's going to lead to burnout. Now let's take a sharp turn out of Bummersville and talk about some solutions. Let's start with the obvious, more well-paying jobs with more time off. Instead of the average 10 days of PTO per year that we have in the U.S., Let's normalize and maybe consider the 28 days they have in England, the 30 days in France. If a living wage was standard practice, people could take trips or do leisure without thinking about financial security. Also, studies from around the world have shown that four-day work weeks, if anything, improve productivity. The last thing I want to mention is a perspective shift. Simply put, to borrow language from the fast-growing Reddit community, late-stage capitalism, let's not tell kids to dream of labor. Glamorizing it is very silly and only benefits managers and CEOs who want to create a generation of productive workers. Let's not, quote, work to relax. Actually, no, let's do exactly that. Let's work to relax. As in putting more effort to relax and... It's semantics. 
Do we do it, team? Episode three in the books. This has been Millennial Shelter. I'm your host, Yusung Liu. To be frank, this episode was a little more difficult to make than the last two because it forced me to examine my relationship with this podcast. I asked myself, do I consider this work or a hobby? And I still can't answer that with 100% certainty. And that got me thinking, if it is work, then in an age of things going viral, did I already fail and that I'm not wildly successful after two episodes? That's probably a topic for another time. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. At one point, we were ranked a few shows below Dr. Phil's podcast on the society and culture chart. Now, I'm not one for making enemies, but I do think it would be a societal good if we were in that spot instead. Ratings and reviews really help with that. Of course, you can also mention the show to a friend if they ask what you've been listening to. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at M underscore ShelterPod. Episodes are going to come out as soon as they're finished, and I'll keep you updated there. Our art was done by Jay and Nicely, whose website you can find in the episode description. Our intro music was mixed by Wade Ryan, and you can listen to his work on Spotify under the artist Gold Sedan. All sources used for this episode can be found in the episode description. Special thanks to Eliza, Nick, Beth, and everyone listening for making the show possible. Please take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.